Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones. Uh, today on the program, we have Johnny A. Uh, I had a chance to chat with Johnny A about his story career over the years. Um, I mean, we got into so much, including his signature guitar uh, that he has and um, his Just Me and My Guitars tour, uh, speaking through his guitars. A lot of it comes back to guitars, I would say, uh, as well as um, his passion for the Beatles and, uh, and so much more. We'll get into that in just a bit. Um, it looks like I'm sweating a little bit for those that are watching on YouTube. Yeah, I don't have a makeup department, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, uh, it is like 107 right now. Uh, when I'm recording this, and uh, and almost eight o'clock at night, and it's gross. Uh, where where I even though I have the AC on and set to like 75, I think, uh, but it's still it's still pretty gnarly. So uh, we're gonna push forward and do the best we can with uh, with what we got. Um, all right, uh, let's talk about what I got going on in uh, in life and what we're going to bring to the program. Again, Johnny A, we'll bring him in in a, in a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk uh, about a concert. We're going to do a little concert review of sorts um, for the Third Eye Blind and Taking Back Sunday show at Oxbow Commons in Napa, which uh, I think, I don't, I don't remember if I bought the tickets uh, when I lived in Napa or, uh, or afterwards, but I bought it with uh, my buddy Joe and Jackie, his wife. And they decided to, you know, bring some COVID back from Hawaii, so they weren't able to make it. So I needed to scurry, try and find some someone to go with, um, and um, you know, and figure out that whole situation because they they weren't cheap tickets. But it was a tour we were excited to to go to. Joe and I had even joked about going to see it down in LA before they announced there would be a Napa date at the end of the tour. This very end of the tour, last show, uh, and um, and. Uh, so I need to figure out something to do with tickets. I didn't want them to go to waste ultimately. I didn't care uh, about the money from it or uh, anything because Joe and Jackie paid for theirs already. So that wasn't a concern as much as, you know, hey, either hopefully going with someone who would appreciate the show or, um, you know, or selling them so someone else could uh, could go to the show as well, right? So, uh, so I went through different alterations. I tapped some people, didn't find anybody to go uh, ultimately. Um, I had plans the same day to head out east uh, to Lincoln to go visit uh, a different buddy of mine, Jay, and his family. Uh, kids and I were going to go and, uh, and hit his pool, do some swimming and hanging and, uh, and that sort of thing. So my plan was to go east and then go back west and north to Napa, uh, ultimately, and uh, go to the show and then come back, right? But my daughter sprung on me, uh, hey, dad, um, you know, my friend that I haven't gotten to see all summer wants me to come to the fair with her in Napa. Uh, can I can I go? I'm like, well, we already have these plans, you know, uh, to, to go east. I, I can't take you. So I guess if they're going to pick you up, sure. Trying to be understanding, trying to be supportive. She's 12 years old. And at that point where, uh, you know, these decisions that I make impact her greatly. And, uh, and she's going to see value in them and it's going to help our relationship if I try and find a way to say yes, rather than shut down all the shit that she brings, you know, and, uh, and everything that goes on there, right? So I was looking for a way to say yes with the abilities that I had in terms of, you know, our, our initial plans. Uh, so, uh, so eventually, um, you know, I call up the friend's mom and say, hey, okay, here's what we got cooking. Um, if you could pick her up, she could go. To the fair with you and then i'll take her to the concert because i'm gonna i'll bring her back to my home in vacaville um afterwards right well 
the mom was cool with that. She said, okay, she'll pick uh, my daughter up, uh, come all the way out here, pick her up and then take her back. Super generous. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, so she, uh, you know, that was the plan. That was the plan initially. And she picks my daughter up. I go to my friends with, with uh, my, my son and we're hanging out at the pool. I call my daughter at uh, like 11.50 in the morning uh, because I, this is the first time I left her home without me and left the town, you know? So I called to check in and she said, hello? You know, so I woke her up I, and before I left, I told her I was turning her phone on and ring so that she'd hear uh, when I called, she, she could sleep. She was asleep at 11.50 in the morning. I'm like, I don't have those jeans. I can't sleep till 6 a.m. So I don't know what to do with that, but I'm like, okay. You know, I called her. She said, thank you for waking her up so she could get ready and be ready when her friends picked her up. Uh, and then she went to Napa uh, for the fair. And, you know, uh, a little bit later when I was driving back from my friend's house, I was on the phone with a different friend and, uh, and she called me three times. And, and my car does this awesome thing where it, uh, it uh, actually pushes the person to voicemail if, uh, if I'm on the other line, but I get this beep, like beep you know, that uh, notifying me that it pushed someone to voicemail. It's, it's great, you know, so I don't get the choice of whether I can switch over on calls or anything. Um, it just happens. To, and so she called three times in the matter of like 20 seconds. So I'm like, okay, I gotta go. I gotta answer my daughter. And she's like, dad, we're not even to my friend's house yet. Can I just stay here, you know, and you can get me after the fair and after the concert and not go to concert with you. And I'm like, okay. And I had already sold one ticket on, uh, Facebook marketplace. Um, and after, you know, being scammed by someone else on Craigslist, uh, I messed with the scanner scammer, uh, you know, and because they, their email reply had said sent for my iPhone, but the text was green. And that's how I was like, I know you don't have an iPhone and your email that you tried to send me from Venmo, uh, you know, it's saying it was coming from Venmo, uh, came from an at att.net account. I'm not a boomer. That was my response to the scammer. I'm not a boomer. I know you're you know, I know what you got cooking. Didn't hear back after that, but I sold one ticket on the marketplace and then someone else had shown interest for, you know, cheaper price on, uh, on Craigslist and who actually was in Napa. So I sold the other ticket there and went to the Third Eye Blind and Taking Back Sunday show. So uh, there was a, an, a band from Australia that opened the show called Hockey Dad and, uh, and they were pretty cool. Um, dug them, they were, uh, they were good times. I was excited for Taking Back Sunday. I've been a fan since like 2002, something along those lines, right? Uh, for eons, 20 years I've been a fan of that band and, uh, and I love their first album um, that, that they have uh, uh, out as well. And so, you know, it's always a good time to see Taking Back Sunday. Adam Lazar's vocals are not what they used to be. They are just not great, let's just say. And it was, it was not their top-notch performance. Uh, phoned it in a little bit as well. It was a one-off. I mean, it wasn't a headline show or anything. So it, there were some challenges with that, but I'm still taking my Sunday fan. So I'll have a good time during their set, um, which I went to again, I went to the show solo. Um, and so I, uh, uh, so I watched them and I want to play a song uh, from Take Mac Sunday that takes me back to my youth about 20 years. Uh, we're going to play some music on this podcast. So let me preface that as well uh, throughout the podcast. So let's play a, a song from Taking Back Sunday. This is Cute Without the E, cut from the team from their uh, set at Oxford Commons in Napa. <laughs> 
That was cute without the E cut from the team by Taking Back Sunday. Uh, and so continuing on, uh, I'm talk about Third Eye Blind a little bit, but I want to save the, you know, their music for later on in the program so we can get to our guest. Um, so uh, Third Eye Blind, I haven't seen them since like 2001. I think like probably around the time I was graduating high school to date myself. Yes, intentionally dating myself there, I guess. 
which by the way, I got a, uh, I saw a notification uh, about a reunion for, uh, for, uh, for my class and classes around mine, you know, in high school. And, uh, and I was texting with my buddy, Joe, who graduated the year after me uh, from the same high school. And I was like, I'm not going if you don't go. I'm like, I just don't have any interest. If there's anybody that I want to still talk to, I have a way to get a hold of them. But really, there's no one from high school that I need to get in touch with, you know, old friends and everything. Okay, sure. You know, I guess it, I don't know. I, I just, I leave the past in the past. And those that I uh, care about and that are important to me are in my life right now. And so he's like, I'm, I'm not going to that. So <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not going either. Uh, I just, I do not have the, an interest in putting myself in that situation for a, a reunion. So I'm gonna, gonna go ahead and miss that one. Um, all right, uh, so Third Eye Blind. I saw him in 2001 uh, at Concord Pavilion, I wanna say. And, uh, and it was, I remember that being a good show you know, that they put on. I remember Stephen Jenkins running through the crowd and playing you know, halfway out in the crowd, uh, some song that, that they had, and it was a fun show. I haven't seen them since then. Um, heard a review from uh, from my buddy Jay while we were chatting that uh, that they were not great when he saw them ten years ago, but that was probably during a uh, point when he was intoxicated. You know, the, the singer was intoxicated. Could have been. Um, so uh, I didn't have high hopes, but I was like, hey, you know, let's go, let's go enjoy the show. Um, and so I was able to sneak down to into the VIP section and get up close. Uh, to be able to take some pictures, record some videos. Um, and so we're going to play a couple of songs later on in the program from the Third Eye Blind set. It was actually really, really good. I enjoyed their set. Uh, I tried to listen to some of the, I mean, their new albums, newer albums, you know, leading up to it. But I, you know, it didn't connect. I, I didn't learn them or anything uh, going into the show. I just enjoyed the show for what it was. Um, and the songs that I knew from Third Eye Blind, the hits, right? Uh, so uh, they they put on a really freaking good show. I, I enjoyed it. It was solid. Um, and so we'll get we'll get back to that a, a little bit later. Um, right now, I think we should uh, go ahead and bring in Johnny A. Uh, and uh, and hear a little bit about his career. Here's my interview with Johnny A. Hey, Johnny A. How you doing? Eve, how are you? I am good. I'm good. How your, how's your day treating you so far? So far, so good. All right. It sounds good. And it looks like I found you in your studio. Well, where are you based out of? Just north of Boston. Ah, very cool. And you, you grew up in Boston, right? I did. I'm a North Shore rat. Uh, I grew up five miles. I was born five miles uh, north of Boston in a city called Malden, Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. I... I lived in Boston for the first year of my life. I don't have a lot of memories of it, but- uh, I wouldn't think you would, Steve. <laughs> but I was there, I was there, and that's what matters, right? So, <laughs> uh, uh, very cool. It looks like you're working on some tracks in the background. You, you're deep in the middle of uh, uh, doing some recording. I am. Um, during the lockdown, um, I got together with two um, of my old friends that are Beatle fanatics like myself. Uh, the drummer from the Jay Giles band and Joe Perry project and the bass player from John Cafferty's band, uh, Beaver Brown. And we recorded uh, 21 Beatles songs, kind of reimagined them in instrumentally. Sorry about that. That's a, that's an alarm a to do an interview. You know that I have an interview with you. <laughs> you have an interview, you're busy right now. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, we recorded 21 Beatles songs, and I've been working on them and uh, trying to decide how to put them out, if to put them out or what. They came out great, but, um, you know, navigating the recording business these days is a lot different than it was 20 years ago, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, so when you do a project and, you're, and it's entirely like a tribute to a band like that, tell me about like the approvals. I mean, this might be too inside baseball, but like what goes into being able to release a full album of, uh, of Beatles music, for example, what does that look like? Well, it's not really, you don't really need approvals because the stuff is published and it's not being married to video. It's just recording. So anybody can really do it. You just have to pay them a, what they call a mechanical license. Mm -hmm. um, which is a standardized fee to, for the use to the publisher. And um, really, that's it. We just went about it as a, as a labor of love, really, a passion project for us. Um, we don't ex expect to really tour with it. It's just um, we all have our own solo careers that we do. Mine is like what I'm doing on the West Coast here at Yoshi's, uh, a solo yeah. thing. And um, But we're doing regional shows and local shows. And some stuff, if if uh, if it's affordable, will go out. Like in other words, we are doing Justin Haywood's uh, cruise in February, um, cruise to the Blue. I think it goes out of Miami, and I don't know where it's going to, but because uh, I never get off the boat, so yeah, yeah. Um, but we're doing, you know, if if it if it's financially feasible, we will go do um, out of our region. But right now, it's basically New England area, New York maybe as far as Philly, stuff that we can kind of drive home to because we're all based in Massachusetts, Rhode Island area. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do have a lot of questions about the Beatles stuff. I mean, that's really super interesting to me. So you have uh, from A to Beatles. Um, is that the same guys that you're, you're working on this project with? Yeah, the from A to Beatles. I mean, the, the show that I'm doing at Yoshi's is a solo show. It's just it's yeah, called, it's yeah. me and my guitar. And, and it's a kind of a technology-based show where I don't play the tracks, but I am doing live looping. And uh, I've, I've been studying looping for quite some time, and I've been uh, really delved into it pretty heavily. I started doing this touring maybe two years before the lockdown. It's been pretty successful, and I enjoy it. The From A to Beatles project, like I said, is the guys that recorded the project are the guys that are doing the live project. It's a trio. And uh, it's not really so much a tribute as it is, although we are paying homage to the Beatles. They're, they are my favorite uh, group of musicians, but it's kind of a more of a reimagining of their music instrumentally because there's no vocals involved. Um, so it's almost if you think, you know, Johnny A by way of Hank Marvin and Chet Atkins does the Beatles. So it's kind sure. of something like that with a little bit of Jeff Beck thrown in. Yeah. Um, so with both product projects, you, as you pointed out, you um, uh, you don't have vocals, but you're you're like speaking through the guitar, through your instruments. So tell me about how you find that connections with the songs and to be able to uh, to express your voice in that manner. Well, I think the path started for me, uh, you know, as an instrumental artist trying to be a guitarist as a vocalist. Um, it started way back because I was a singer originally until I got a very bad case of laryngitis and lost my voice. And then when my voice came back, was not able to sing in the register of the meat and potatoes of where a male vocal would be. I have my mm -hmm. falsetto, I have my baritone, but I don't really have that midsection. So I had to find a way to be able to um, 
suggest the melodies on my instrument. And I, you know, I crafted that and, and, and try to be emotive in so that, that anybody that recognizes these popular songs can kind of imagine the vocals with the way that I, you know, promote them uh, instrumentally. You know, it's not unlike, although it's not a retro thing, but it's not unlike uh, guitarists of the late 50s and 60s that were guitarists as vocalists, case in point, people like Hank Marvin, people like Chet Atkins, people like Les Paul. Um, so it's it's kind of in that, in that uh, era. Yeah. Um, did you ever have a chance to meet Les Paul? I did. I was friends with Les Paul and got the chance to... Um, sit in with him several times and actually was honored to be asked to play on a tribute album by the Les Paul trio after Les passed. Uh, I also played at his hundredth, uh, uh, anniversary party, uh, in Manhattan, um, with a bunch of great guitar players like Neil Sean, Joe Bonamassa, Warren Haynes, Steve I, Joe Satriani, Steve Miller. Um, was a great event, but uh, I got a chance to play. I was asked to play Sweet Georgia Brown, which was the very last song Les ever performed live. And from what I was told, I'm the very last artist that sat in with Les before he passed. Oh, that's incredible. What was that experience like? Well, Les was just a very generous soul. You know, he was very encouraging. Um, very complimentary. He loved music. He loved musicians. And uh, he was just very generous with his time. And uh, I enjoyed my relationship with Les. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so tell me, uh, I want to go back. I want to go back to kind of when you were a kid and, uh, and kind of get a, a feel for the dynamic in your household, because I know you're no one in your family was like musically in inclined, really, right? You were, you were the first there. So um, what music was on in your house and how did you find, uh, find music yourself? Well, um, my dad was a, um, he was a big, like big band guy, you know, he loved Count Basie, loved Benny Goodman, you know, he loved, uh, a lot of that swing stuff, uh, you know, Dorsey's and, and all that stuff. And my mom was a big fan of the music of the day. She loved blues music. She loved popular, popular music. She loved all the stuff when I was coming up. She loved Jimi Hendrix. She loved the Beatles. She loved all the music of the day. Um, so I, and my ethnicity is kind of, uh, I guess, Middle Eastern because uh, I'm Greek. I'm 100% Greek. And there was always a lot of Middle Eastern Syrian um, Greek music going on in the house. So a lot of that great improvising clarinet music and oud and bazooki and all these just great stringed instruments with all these like microtonic, uh, microtonal scales and things going on. So, um, and if you know anything about Mediterranean people, they're pretty expressive and they're pretty, um, you know, they really personify life. So there would always be these great parties going on at my Uncle Vic's house and this music would be blaring by, you know, all these, uh, like I said, Middle Eastern artists and there'd be belly dances and there'd be, you know, all this stuff going on. So music was 
always there in a heavy way, but not from the standpoint that anybody in my family played music. It just kind of got uh, morphed into me uh, through osmosis of listening to all this stuff, uh, whether it be big band, whether it be, like I said, uh, Syrian music, Greek music, Middle Eastern music, uh, blues music, and then the music of the day. Uh, I grew up uh, divorced parents when I was four. My grandmother and my grandfather, my grandfather immigrated from Greece. He ended up having a luncheonette in Medford, Massachusetts. My mom would work there on Saturdays. Basically, that's where my babysitting thing was when I was about five or six years old. I'd be at the luncheonette. And it was at a, a time when the counters of the luncheonette, every, let me say, two stools would have a like a jukebox stanchion. And you could yeah. put you know, money in and play the music of the day. And they would just feed me coins and basically pacify me for the six hours that I was there. And I'd be listening to Little Richard, uh, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Everly Brothers, who I was a huge fan of, uh, and just all that, Buddy Holly, all that stuff. So they we're talking about like 1957 or something like that. So very, very early on, I was embossed, you know, with this, this music, musicality of all different types of stuff. You know, I was a drummer first. I grew up playing drums from age six to maybe 11 and switched over to a, a guitar when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But it was all that stuff early on, listening to Louis Belson and Buddy Rich and Sandy Nelson and, uh, you know, and just having a love and a, a fervor and a passion for all kinds of musicalities. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really like you know, I'm not like a rock guy. I'm not a jazz guy. I'm not a country guy. I'm not a, but I love all kinds of music and I love popular music. You know, uh, I'm not a jazz snob. I'm not a, a, a blues Nazi. I'm, I'm I, anything that's good. I like, you know, if it's good, I like it. Maybe yeah. opera, it might be the exception. <laughs> no opera for you. Got it. Okay. Well, you know, obviously yeah. I appreciate it. And I think there's some great stuff, but you know, I have to be able to kind of sink my teeth into it. And, you know, a great country song with people like, um, you know, Buck Owens or James Burton playing the guitar or, you know, listening to some Chet Atkins. And then, you know, I just was into a lot of different stuff. I grew up listening to, like I told you, the early rock and roll stuff and then got heavily entrenched into British Invasion stuff and then kind of graduated to... British blues with Cream and Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, who was not British, but was part of that British blues explosion and early Fleetwood Mac. And then I got into prog rock with people like Yes and Genesis and Gentle Giant and Michael Raniak and Chick Corea Return to Forever with Bill Connors and Mahavishnu Orchestra. And then got into, uh, you know, there was the fusion stuff and then you know, got into jazz guys like Wes and Kenny Burrell and, and um, Pat Martino. And, you know, uh, it's just my musicality, my taste for great music is just there. It doesn't really matter what it is. I have a love yeah. for guitar because I happen to be passionate about the sound of an electric guitar. I love the sound of a pure electric guitar. Yeah. And so you, you toured for like 20 years as a, a trio band. And, uh, and tell me about, like, I mean, that experience for you and kind of where you found that decision for yourself to, to go solo, to be able to express yourself, you know, um, by yourself on stage. 
Well, the solo trio thing came as a result of leaving uh, after eight years with Peter Wolf from the Giles Band. And like I said, while I was on the road with Wolf is when I got that bronchial infection and that severe laryngitis. I was always a lead singer until I got that uh, laryngitis. And when I came out of that band with Wolf and I started my solo career, I made that first record in 99, sometime Tuesday morning. Um, the result of going instrumental was the fact that I couldn't sing and realizing whoever delivers the melody is the sound of your band. So whether it's Mick Jagger, you know, Peter Wolf, uh, Steven Tyler, Bruce Springsteen singing, or whether it's a guy like Booker T playing the keyboards or Kenny G playing the saxophone, Chris Body, whoever that is, whoever's delivering the melody is the sound of your act. Doesn't matter how great the musicians are and you can't you can't underscore how great it is to have a supporting cast around you, but um, at the end of the day, it's whoever delivers the melody is the sound of your thing. So I just realized at that point that I couldn't really put my eggs in some lead singer's basket. And I had to kind of try to see if I could discover my own voice through my instrument. And that's how that, that journey started in 99. Yeah. And, and tell me about working with Peter Wolf. What was that experience like for you? Oh, he was great. You... I mean, Peter's a character. Uh, he's been through it all. He's seen it all. He knows a lot. He's a very musical guy. Um, encyclopedia of past musicalities, which I learned a lot from. Master at the stage. Master at giving an interview. Um, I was fortunate enough to be his sidekick on a lot of these radio interviews and television interviews because he would need someone to accompany him. And I would be there playing guitar while he sang or played harmonica and and directed the interview and i learned a lot on how he was able to control the interview and it's very important because you really want to get out what you want to get out in a way and frame it the way you want to frame it and he was just he's just a master he's a master showman he's a master yeah. showman, you know so yeah uh, uh, so you mentioned earlier you're going to be playing Yoshi's. I know you're also playing Sweetwater, uh, No Valley. Um, I mean, those are a couple of cool venues here in the, in the Bay Area. Um, you've played Yoshi's in the in the past. Uh, tell me about kind of going back to Yoshi's or your experience there, and also like um, from a Bay Area perspective, what what venues do you like there? What, what's your favorite place to play in the Bay Area? Well, I do love Yoshi's. I've been playing there for quite some time now. And uh, probably, I would say for, I don't know, maybe close to 15, 20 years, I guess I go back there every year. And uh, I love it because the staff is respectful. They treat an artist like an artist. The audience is respectful. It's a real listening room. I played there in all combinations. I played there with my trio. I played there when I was touring with the Yardbirds. Uh, I've played there several times as a solo act. Um, it's just always, it's always comfortable and um, always respectful, I guess is, you know, I feel like an artist when I walk in the room and, and the way I'm treated by the staff and the management and the audience, you know. Um, and, you know, when you're on the road and you're doing these one-nighters and you, you know, the travel days are long and you don't sleep well and you don't really eat great and, uh, crazy schedules, it's nice to go into a room where an artist feels like an artist. 
so I do love going back to Yoshi's. There's there's places like that across the country that I really love to play. The Triple Door in Seattle is another room, and uh, Mim in Phoenix, Arizona, and you know there's 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 several places. But Yoshi's is a, is a great room. You know the Dakota in Minneapolis, and there's a lot of rooms. But Yoshi's is a is quite a special room. For sure. Um, tell me the feeling when St uh, Steve Vai calls you up and offers you a record deal. What, what was that like for you? <laughs> well, that was quite interesting because um, that first album, Sometime Tuesday Morning, uh, I put that out independently and it was selling well and it was getting local and regional airplay. And uh, I had kind of maxed out what I was going to be able to do on my own. I mean, I was a small guy. I was... I made the record on a shoestring. I uh, promoted it myself. Um, and it was at a point where to take a, you know, I was very fortunate in 19, in 2000 or 1999 or 2000, 2001, when that record launched, uh, I was very lucky that there was an independent radio format called AAA Radio. And it was able to get artists like me on, the, I mean, people that were coming up at that time, I remember on that, on those stations were myself, John Mayer, Brad Paisley, uh, uh, the guy that did uh, Babylon, what was his name? Oh, David Gray. David Gray. Yeah. Um, and artists of the like, you know, maybe uh, Joan Osborne, uh, people like that. Um, and a bunch of them broke out to be really big, case in point, Brad Paisley, case in point, John Mayer. Um, David Gray had a huge hit. You know, I kind of kept myself, I was kind of in that boutique level because I'm an instrumental artist. So instrumental artists don't really have the same kind of commercial appeal as a vocalist. Um, but I was, able to, I was able to get a number one song across the country. And I did get a call from Steve I, and uh, I was coming home from a rehearsal. And it was on my birthday, I think I remember. I think it was on my birthday or either Thanksgiving or on my birthday. And I had a voice message from Steve Vai. Uh, I don't even know how he got my number. But um, he called and he said, hey, you know, this is Steve Vai. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, and he said, I've, I've got a copy of your record and I really loved what you're doing. I heard Wichita Lyman. I must have played it 20 times in the car. And, you know, if, could you give me a call back? I'd like to talk to you about re-releasing your record nationally excuse me, nationally and internationally. And I'm like, like, this is this a joke? Although I didn't recognize the voice, so I didn't think it was a friend playing a joke on me. Uh, yeah. so I called him and um, we had a nice conversation. And, you know, it's an interesting lesson on not judging a book by its cover. You know, obviously Steve is a mega talented musician great composer, great artist, great musician, great visionary in what he does. But, you know, me, I wouldn't think that he would have any interest in my version of something like Wichita Lineman, which is yeah. slow, melodic, um, melancholy. You know, he's a very aggressive guitarist, a lot of notes, um, big production. My production was simple uh was spacious um and it and and the, the 
I probably still have the voice message somewhere, but um, the passion that he had for my version of that song, it taught me a lesson that what you see is not always what you get, you know, and I was thrilled because obviously he was iconic in the guitar industry, had a label that was a label enabled, uh, enabled me to go from a regional level to an international level. You know, that record went on to sell, I don't know, 160, 170,000 albums. You know, then he offered me a record deal and we put out Get Inside, the second album, which I got a Grammy nomination on one of the songs on that album. And uh, it launched my career from, you know, Peter Wolf was the guy that took me from being a local guy and got me to be on a national stage by, you know, I, I co-produced that record Longline and Warner Brothers with him, yeah. uh, which came out in 96 and we toured internationally. So it took me from a local level as a guitarist to a national and somewhat international level as a, as a guitarist and my name. And then Steve I came along and took me from being a local regional recording artist to an international recording artist. So, you know, you never know why these things happen or how they happen. And, you know, if it was now and that record came out, it probably wouldn't happen. But, you know, stars aligned and timing is everything. And there was a format called AAA Radio Station, which gave my song a, a, a leg up. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate for the things that came along in my life when they did. Yeah. And how much, so how involved was he after that call? After he kind of, you know, oh, he was very involved. Uh, he was very involved throughout the whole Sometime Tuesday Morning campaign. When get, when, and because he wasn't very actively touring at that time, he was pretty much uh, a record company executive at that point. And then when we did get inside, the regime within the, um, the management of the record company favored nations entertainment changed and also steve got more involved with personally touring and putting out records so he was not as hands-on with the label and consequently the day-to-day -day stuff changed from yeah. sometime tuesday morning to get inside it makes sense makes sense um so i want to go back to kind of your writing process a little bit and get you know and understand a little bit about kind of your your process as you're writing your own music right so being a, a musician that uh that again doesn't have the vocals uh what i read was you've written you know some of the songs you write and i don't know if it's all of them but a, a couple of examples i saw were bundle of joy and ignorance is bliss like you'll write those with lyrics and then strip the lyrics out of them uh, and then kind of bring the music forward. So is that a normal process for you? Is that- Well, like those songs that you mentioned, like, um, for example, Ignorance is Bliss, um, Bundle of Joy, which was also called, uh, originally was called, uh, the title was If I Didn't Have You, and a song like uh, Sway a Little, which was originally called Fine Way of Showing It. Those were vocal songs that I did in previous incarnations with other bands. Okay. Uh, my own bands. The writing process for me is always about melody pretty much first. It's not really even about a chord progression yet. It's, uh, and I usually write very lyrically because I love popular music. You know, a lot of people think pop as a bad word, but pop is popular. And I don't know who doesn't want to be popular. You know, any, right. any, any artist that says they don't want to have commerciality and not be popular is full of shit. You do you know, want to sell records or no you okay. want to sell no. records you want people at the venues you need to you need to make enough money to fight another day um 
So my music has always been accessible, but not because I'm chasing accessibility. It's just that's that's kind of what's ingrained with me. I grew up listening to the Everly Brothers and, and Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and the Beatles and the Stones and the Animals and the Kinks. And, you know, so that was the first music that I think made a lasting impression on me. And yes, influence in my playing has been garnered from everybody from John McLaughlin to Bill Connors to Robert Fripp to, to, to Steve Howe to you know, Jimi Hendrix to Jeff Beck, uh, all those people are in what I do. There's no, you know, there's no denying it. And I don't want to deny it. You know, they're, they made, they gave me some fantastic guitar lessons, but at the end of the day, it's melody and arrangement that is kind of paramount for me. So when I write music, you know, I kind of grab, you know, the Beatles are like my high benchmark to me. You know, uh, in production, in arrangement, in composition, um, in harmony, in uh, imagery. I mean, when you take a band that can go from I want to hold your hand to I am the walrus. I mean, it's like, what? So um, I kind of always look to them and I always, not that I think I achieve it, but I always think like, okay, well, what would George Martin do? What would John Lennon think here? You know, what would Paul McCartney say to this, you know? So, and since I originally was a lyricist and a singer, my melodies are, I always try to have them be singable. Like I could, even though there are no words in the later albums uh, and even some of the things on sometime Tuesday morning, yes, some of the songs I'm getting inside were vocal songs that were adapted to instrumental. But as I go forward and accept the fact that I'm not a singer anymore and I'm an instrumental artist, I still construct my melodies and songs as if someone was singing them, whether it's Paul Rogers or Paul McCartney, you know? Yeah, and a lot of your writing you do while you're driving, which is also interesting to me. So is that like listening to other music or is that like, you're you're just silent like where where are you in the zone when you kind of when i drive i'm usually by myself um and i don't usually have the radio on and driving to me is kind of a a sanctum you know it's like uh it's just i kind of zone out and a melody will come in my head and i used to have a little cassette player with me or a little bat player at one time, and now you have iPhones, so which is great. So you can just put on a you know a, a phone recording and hum a melody, so you yeah. just don't forget it. And my process with the melody is, I will come up with a melody, and then when I get home or when I or if I'm at, I'm at if I am at home and I'm I'm coming up with a melody, I'll grab my instrument, which is a guitar, and I will play the most immediate chords that come around to that melody, the most simplest chord progression that'll come along to that melody. And then I will try to extrapolate on that and substitute chords. So maybe the, the initial chord was a G chord, let's say, but maybe I'll, instead of doing the melody and do it with a G chord, I'll do a B minor chord or something like that, or a D suspended chord or something to make the melody sound more interesting. So that's kind of the process. And I just hack away until I find what pleases me. 
I think I have yeah. a good ear. I think I have a good, uh, a good aptitude for knowing what a good melody and harmony is. And usually if I feel like if I like it, someone else will like it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure many have, I mean, you have your, uh, your signature guitar, right? So, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, getting that benchmark is obviously a, a pretty solid milestone towards, uh, you know, <laughs> towards your career. It doesn't suck. No, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, the Yardbirds, your time with the Yardbirds. What was that experience like for you? Um, the Yardbirds originally called me in 2014, I believe, uh, asked me to do to tour with them. I wasn't available to do it. I was um, touring. I had a solo tour already booked, so I couldn't do it. They'd do it. Their dates overlapped my dates exactly, so I said I can't do it. I couldn't really burn the promoters, and tickets were already on sale for my shows. And then they called, and then they hired uh, Earl Slick, who played with Bowie and John Lennon and a bunch of other people. Um, and they were gonna tour and Jim McCarty, the founding member uh, had to cancel the tour for I think medical reasons. And then they never did a show together. I, actually, they never rehearsed with Earl because um, I had met Earl when I was finally did tour with the Yardbirds. Um, and I got a call again in 2015 and I was already starting another tour, but I was able and I was able to move my dates for them. And uh, they asked me if I would do the tour. Um, I did, and I ended up staying with them for four years. I think we did a couple hundred shows, and uh, that was a great experience for me because my favorite rock, my favorite band outside of the Beatles growing up was the Yardbirds. Uh, especially the 1965 version of the band, which had Jeff Beck. Yeah. You know, I think that was in a, in a, a crazy, um, uh, what's the, what's the word I want to use? Energetic, passionate, experimental, um, great band. And Jeff Beck was just brilliant in that band. And I just learned a lot from listening to Jeff Beck on those Yardbird records. So um, I think when I got the chance to sit in his chair and do four years of touring with them, I kind of knew the catalog, even though I never played in cover bands that played Yardbird songs pretty much. I think we might've done one or two. I just knew the catalog, but more than knowing the catalog, the attitude of that band and the way Jeff played in that band was kind of ingrained in my wonder years of learning how to play guitar. You know, yeah. it started with the Beatles when I was about 12 years old, but then the Yardbirds came along in 65. It wasn't so much the Clapton Yardbirds or the Jimmy Page Yardbirds. It was the Jeff Beck Yardbirds. Birds. So it's 65, you know, I was born in 52. So it's in 65, you know, I was what, 12, 13 years old. 13, yeah. That was 13 years old. So it's when I was to the point of, it was just after the point of picking up a guitar and kind of learning how to play to the point where I actually had a little bit of facility and understood what I was listening to. So that was a, the very, I call those my uh, wonder bread years. Yeah. You know? um, and, and that band and he was a very big part of that for me. 
And I'm sure you talked to Jim about what, you know, an influence, you know, that band was, you know, from your youth as well. Yeah. Right? And I've All spoken to Jeff about that as well. You know, I have I've had the opportunity to play with Jeff and, and meet Jeff a couple, you know, several times actually. Um, so, uh, you know, and he still pushes the envelope. He's probably, you know, he would have to, I would have to put him up there with, uh, one of, if not the kind of greatest rock guitar player of all time. And there's a lot of great guitar players and you can judge them on different criteria. But as far as a guy that's had a 50, 60 year career pushing the envelope of his playing and changing the game for players, I mean, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find another guy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, so, so kind of, as we wind out here, we started talking, you know, about Boston and, uh, and being from Boston, but you, I mean, you received kind of great accolades from, from your community, really, in terms of winning the Boston Music Hall, uh, Hall of Fame, being, being entered into there. Uh, tell me about that experience and what that means to you being, you know, being from Boston. Well, I mean, well, first of all, it was unexpected. You know, because I've always kind of been a black sheep and um, and an underdog. And, uh, you know, I was never really in the day when I was coming up. I was never really the big headlining act in my area, you know, all through the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I had some great bands and we played the scene, but I was never the guy that would sell out the big, you know, 600 seat room or anything like that. And my career really came late. You know, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that um i got a real break and be actually became a headliner like now i'm a headliner in boston at, at my age which is insane but um you know it's always nice to be recognized you know than rather than not recognized so you know i accept the award and it's it's great to to have that you know just like it's great to have the gibson signature guitar of on be involved in these companies like with fender and marshall and all that stuff like that where which are iconic brands and brands that you aspire to as a young player um but i mean i don't know you know what what does an award really mean i mean what's it mean i mean i just really want to play my instrument and write good music uh, or interpret great songs. And that's another thing. It doesn't matter to me whether I write the songs or I interpret the song. You know, once I take on a song, whether it be Wichita Lyman or a Beatles song or a Stone song or whoever it is, to me, it doesn't matter. Once I kind of put my thing to it and, you know, stir up in my soup and hit puree, it's my song. You know, it's, it, you know, I, yes, I didn't write some of these songs, but I feel like I put enough of an indi individual stamp on them that I own my version of them, you know. Um, and uh, so to be recognized, that's great. You know, it's, it's always great. You want to, you, you'd rather be accepted than not accepted. And like okay. I said, who doesn't want to be popular? Yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't change anything with the music or how you're, you know, you're approaching your, your music, but, but yeah, but it's, you know, more feather in the cap and then I mean, let's put it this way. Music. I don't, I don't get any free meals in any restaurants. Because <laughs> I've lost the music award, uh, you know, inductee, you know, I don't even no. get a cup of coffee. So <laughs> I still pay for my drinks, you know. Oh man, you don't just walk down the street of Boston and, you know, they roll out the red carpet. And... <laughs> no, not so much. Not so much. Well, uh, Johnny, I want to thank you for the time, and I, I hope 
I wish you a lot of luck with the tour um, and uh, and the future music that you're you're making. The Beatles, uh, how, however that works out, I hope they get to hear it. Uh, that would be really awesome. And uh, um, and yeah, I appreciate your time. Okay, my pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for the support. That was the interview with Johnny A here on Concert Pipeline. And before we get to the, uh, the final segment on the program, um, I want to play one of Taking, uh, not Taking Back Sunday, I want to play one of Third Eye Blind's songs uh, from their uh, their set at Oxbow Commons in Napa uh, this uh, past week. Um, and this is uh, a song that I really enjoyed, actually. I didn't know it offhand. It seemed kind of familiar, but I, I didn't really know it, right? But it was a, a really cool performance. Uh, so uh, we're going to uh, share it now. This is a song called Motorcycle Drive-By. <laughs> Blowing outside in the way Josie and I know in the city The sun is always in my eyes It crashes through the windows I'm sleeping on the couch When I came to visit you That's when I knew That I could never have you I knew that before you did So I'm the one who's stupid
Motorcycle Drive-By by Third Eye Blind here on Concert Pipeline. And that takes us to the final segment on the program, the music news. Uh, all right, uh, so we have a couple of stories to wind out the program here. And, uh, and so here is the first one. It has to do with KISS. Uh, so Gene Simmons says KISS will continue in ways I haven't even thought of. Uh, and the band has been on an extended farewell tour since announcing their retirement in 2018. Longest goodbye uh, that uh, is out there. Although some bands are doing that sort of thing. I think Motley Crue might even be uh, still uh, saying goodbye. It's, uh, it's possible, right? Uh, so. Uh, so what he says is, um, in, in, in a recent interview, he hinted at a significant extension to the farewell tour, promising that KISS will take the show to a hundred more cities before they finally retire. So if you thought you were seeing KISS for their last show in your area, you're probably wrong. You got duped, uh, but at least you got to see them perform live again, right? So they're not done. A hundred more cities. That sounds like an extra year or so uh, if I were to... Uh, take the over-under on it, right? Um, and so you could hear the interview on the Let There Be Talk podcast, um, but uh, he said uh, there, he anticipates there to be a long future ahead of KISS even after the original lineup start, stopped touring and discuss where their last ever show might take place. We don't know if it's going to be in New York. I have good reasons why it should be, uh, but the important thing is when it's the last show, It'll be the last show, he said. Kiss, the touring band will stop, but the touring band, uh, Kiss, will continue in other ways. Okay, so they're going to stop, but they're going to continue. We're going to stop, we're going to continue. Which one is it? Come on, Jane, give us some information. Uh, uh, I have no problems with four deserving 20-year-olds uh, sticking the makeup back on and hiding their identity. Um, he added, Kiss will continue in ways that I haven't even thought of, but I can conceive of, you know, the Blue Man Group and Phantom of the Opera tours around the world with different personnel. There could and should be a KISS show kind of live on stage with effects and everything else, but also a semi-autobiographical thing about four knuckleheads off the streets of New York that ends with the last third as a full-blown celebration, uh, a full-on performance, not with us, although not a problem stepping in every once in a while. Uh, so uh, the they plan to reschedule their uh, Las Vegas res residency, which was canceled last year. Um, so that's what's going on with KISS. Uh, we'll see what, what happens and if they identify some youngins to take the, the throne and call themselves KISS, 
Is there an uh, audition process for that? Where do I sign up? Uh, all these questions are circling around my head, right? We'll see. Um, all right, Eminem, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg were pictured together in the studio, uh, you know, all famously at the Super Bowl halftime show uh, before, but uh, Marshall Mathers captioned a photo, uh, just a, a few bros hanging out. Uh, and so uh, taking to social media, uh, he shared an image of the three posted, posing in front of a mixing desk and a large set of speakers. Um, no further details were offered, leading fans to speculate over a potential new collaboration. Uh, and there's obviously the photo online where, uh, where you could see that, or I could show you on YouTube, but I'm reading from uh, as well. It shows that they were all in, in studio together. Um, uh, Snoop and Eminem both, both guested Andre's second studio album, 2001, which came out in 1999 couple of years before 2001. Uh, and Mathers, of course, appear, appears on the hit Forgot About Dre and What's the Difference. Snoop features on the next episode. They've, they've intertwined many times before, right? Uh, so um, uh, so we'll see if they, we get new music from, uh, from them all together. Okay, here's an interesting one. Stranger Things star Jamie Bauer shared a brooding new single, I Am. The country and Western track is the fourth song released by the man behind Vecna, uh, so far this year. Uh, for those that aren't familiar just by the name, which I had to look it up even though I watched Stranger Things, Vecna is uh, the weird dude. Uh, he's number one in the final season. Uh, so you can kind of get a sense. I'll, I won't spoil anything beyond that with, in terms of Stranger Things for those that haven't watched yet. But if you haven't watched yet, sorry, you're behind the game. Um, you need to catch up. Uh, and so this is his fourth standalone single for 2022. Uh, and um, it's a dark and twangy country rock song with its lyrics and accompanying music video, making several references to death and religion. He first made mention of the song during an appearance on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, where he also comedically recited the lyrics to Lizzo's About Damn Time using the voice of his Stranger Things character, Vecna. Uh, so the video for I Am was helmed by brothers Vicente and Fernando uh, Cordero, who served as director and cinematographer, respectively, and sees Bauer playing two roles. Uh, and these characters are uh, described as a preacher at the pulpit, delivering an impassioned uh, lit liturgy and a wayward... Uh, okay, I'm done. I'm done with these big words that I can't pronounce. Uh, but there's a video online for it, and you can, uh, and you can check that out. So... Uh, and he also previously revealed that he listened to Placebo's cover of Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God, which is very famously uh, intertwined throughout the fine, uh, this most recent season of Stranger Things uh, to help him get out of character after playing Vecna. Uh, so um, interesting stuff. I'd be interested to see that, that live. Um, porno for Pyros are working on their first new material in 25 years. Uh, their last official release was a one-off single in 1997. Um, and for those not familiar with porno uh, for Pyros, uh, it, it's Perry Farrell's old band. Um, and, uh, and so Peter DiStefano confirmed they started recording songs. The longstanding player took to Instagram overnight, sharing a photo of himself and Perry Farrell with the declaration that they were writing it and recording new music. Um, so... Uh, this is the second time that Stefano has teased new porno for Pyro's music. Obviously, Stefano is the one wanting to get that out there. Like, hey, look, I'm working with Perry Farrell again. 
yeah, you know him, Jane's Addiction. You know, he made Lollapalooza. He's done a ton of stuff. He's Perry fucking Farrell, right? Hey, I'm making music with him. Check out my music, right? Yeah, of course, he's going to be the one to, to get after that. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, and so we'll see when that, when that comes. But the, the band's last official release was Hard Charger, a non-album single recorded for the soundtrack to Howard Stern's 1997 film, Private Parts. It's been a while since they've made new music. Let's just say that, right? Uh, J- per- uh, Farrell has been working with Jane's Addiction until recently he um, at Lollapalooza, I believe. He switched out uh, Porno for Pirates playing instead of uh, um, Jane's Addiction. Okay. Um, and Rage Against the Machine, I think this is our last story. Rage Against the Machine's uh, Zach De La Roche has reportedly torn his Achilles tendon. They can't catch a break, so to speak. Um, I mean, that's a little play on words there, I guess, right? But uh, there's a photographer named Glenn E. Friedman, a friend of the band named the Frontman's Injury in a post on Instagram. But uh, this uh, happened during his early on in their now canceled public service announcement tour. Didn't last very long. Um, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks back when I and I might have noted that, you know, uh, my buddy Joe and I had tickets to see Rage Against the Machine that was scheduled to land in the Bay Area a month after COVID hit. So uh, we did not get to see Rage Against the Machine. The tour was delayed for several years, started back up, and then got canceled. So a couple of people got to see uh, them live, I think, before all this cancellation and uh, challenges happened. But it was the second show of the North American leg uh, on July 11th, and he was seen to injure his leg on stage, leaving it for a short time before continuing the performance seated. Um, and so uh, in it, yeah, so this was just 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 came out about what happened uh, to Zach De La Roche. Okay, think uh, thinking good thoughts for Zach. Hopefully, they can pick the tour up at some point and play some shows. You know that's uh, what the fans want, uh, and it just takes them a long time to do that. Um, that is our show for today. Uh, so um, I want to let you know next time on the program we have a band called the Dales. Uh, had a really good chat with them. Um, it was a lot of fun. So looking forward to bringing that to you. We're going to close it out uh, with one more song from Third Eye Blind set at Oxbow uh, River, Riverside stage in Napa. And uh, so this is a song, um, I'm trying to see which one I used. Oh man, I already forgot. It is, uh, it's, it's one of their hits. Oh my gosh, I just totally blanked on it. Um, it is, uh, it's the one that goes like this, I don't know. For the life that you've been living in, and if you do not want to see me again, uh, I will under. I'm totally keeping you along for the, this ride. Uh, third, okay, there we go. Okay, so this is yeah, that's right. I totally blanked on the name. That's bad because this is one of their biggest hits. This is Jumper by Third Eye Blind, and that was the best exit to the, uh, this program ever. So for all of us here at Concert Pipeline. I am Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time.